Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. We're talking about building urban resilience to extreme heat on today's episode. Joining me is Dr. Lad Keith and Dr. Sarah Miro. Sarah is an assistant professor at the School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning at Arizona State University. And Lad is an assistant professor in planning and chair of the Sustainable Built Environments at the University of Arizona. You probably recognize Lad. He's been on several times before. They co-wrote a new book called Planning for Urban Heat Resilience. It just came out, and they are on to share what's in the book and how it could be helpful in your adaptation planning. Extreme heat is the most dangerous impact for climate change, and it frequently gets overshadowed by other impacts like sea level rise, drought, and flooding. It's a great conversation with two of the world's leading experts on the subject of extreme heat. Okay, upcoming episodes. Dr. Catherine Mock of the University of Miami joins to discuss the recently released IPCC report in the chapter on adaptation. We'll also discover how Colorado is approaching climate adaptation. Aaron Sikorsky, the director of the Center for Climate and Security, will come on to discuss national security and climate change. And I'm collaborating with the Natural Resources Defense Council and the Anthropocene Alliance on an episode where we talk with community members impacted firsthand by major flooding events and what actions they are taking to respond. Great stuff on the way. Hey, Adapters. I like to think I am insatiably curious about the world. I don't need to become an expert in these things, but give me some substantive insight and I am all in. How to play blackjack. How to tell if rain is coming by looking at cloud patterns. What exactly caused the Cuban Missile Crisis? How do I ask for luge lessons in Italian? Well, my go-to place to learn about these things is Wondrium. This is the subscription video service that is focused on helping you become a more interesting you. Explore audio and video courses on hundreds of topics taught by university professors, documentaries to help you learn more about the world around you. Also find video tutorials that teach you new hobbies like photography, cooking, crafting, and about health and wellness. All of Wondream's content is world-class and presented by experts who all know their stuff. And it's always ad-free. We all consume information in a variety of ways. Wondrium has you covered. There's a Wondrium app, and you can watch or listen just like a podcast. They also make it easy so you can toggle back and forth between devices, your computer, smartphone, internet-connected TV. I always listen when I'm taking my son to climbing practice. It's a bit of a drive, so it's time to get a lesson in. I just listened to an amazing Wondrium program called Solving for Zero. I've mentioned this before, but there are 10 episodes. I watched one on adaptation before, but now I'm enjoying the one called How We Transport Things. They distill the climate crisis into the fundamentals of what we need to do. Very practical. And again, each episode is grounded by experts in these topics. For those of you in the climate space and you think you know it all, well, you don't. The episode on agriculture was especially enlightening. I know you'll love Wondrium as much as I do, so what are you waiting for? Sign up now through my special URL to start your free trial. Go to wondrium.com slash adapts. Remember, W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash adapts. Check it out. Okay, now let's join Dr. Lad Keith and Dr. Sarah Miro and learn how to make our urban areas more resilient to extreme heat. Hey, adapters. Today I have a very exciting episode. Joining me is Dr. Sarah Miro and Dr. Lad Keith. Sarah is an assistant professor at the School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning at Arizona State University, and Ladd is an assistant professor in planning and chair of the Sustainable Built Environments at the University of Arizona. Hey, Sarah and Ladd, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks so much for having us, and it's really great to be on the podcast. I've been a listener for a while and glad to actually be here. (laughs) 
Fantastic. Yeah, glad to be back on, Doug. Glad you are a recurring character on the podcast, so you know the routine. And so Arizona State, University of Arizona, you guys aren't going to go off and talk football or anything like that, are you? It's, uh, there's not that competition. <laughs> no, not, not, <laughs> not with the two of us. No. <laughs> yeah, we're you know, beyond rivalries. We don't have any too strong of allegiances, I think. <laughs> okay, fantastic. So again, we're talking about heat here. You guys have a new book out, and we're going to be talking mainly about that. And I, I have said ever since glad you came on originally that I didn't I need to make up for lost time talking about climate change and extreme heat and what it means. We're going to talk about your book, but first off, we're going to just give people a bit of grounding if they haven't listened to previous episodes and lad I'm going to start off with you. Let's just talk more generally about heat. Why is it relevant to climate adaptation and you know kind of set us up with what we're going to talk about in the book. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Doug. And so um, like we've discussed before on the podcast, heat's the number one weather-related killer in the United States and has a lot of other impacts across all of those social, economic, and environmental systems that we care a lot about. And one big thing to kind of keep in mind is that these impacts really differ across regions, you know, both in the United States, but globally. And so kind of pointing specifically to Arizona, for the heat deaths in 2020, we had a record 552 deaths. And that surpassed the previous record in 2018 of 283 heat-related deaths. And I just took a look at our preliminary data for 2021, which is last year, and we broke the record again. So it looks like we had 551 heat-related deaths last year. And so kind of we're trending certainly in the wrong direction here, specifically in Arizona. And it's important to note that those heat deaths occurred outside of those officially declared heat wave periods. So those were just kind of in our chronically hot temperatures And so that's kind of a different risk than we've seen in historically cooler places like the Pacific Northwest. And I think we talked about it on a previous podcast, but there is that Pacific Northwest heat wave last year. I mean, the death toll is currently estimated to exceed about 1,400 people. And so kind of thinking through, you know, like we've talked about before, that to compare that with a tragedy like Hurricane Katrina that made landfall in New Orleans in 2005, Hurricane Katrina killed about 1,800 people. And so this heat wave had almost a similar death toll, but kind of our perception of it is very different, both in media and kind of how we plan and respond to heat. Okay, Saren, so I don't. I want you to follow up on that because I think it's a really important part of what your, your book is. And ground us in this whole idea of heat equity. What is that? Yeah, well, I think it's in essence the recognition that these heat impacts, right? These death tolls are not equitably distributed across society, right? Some people are much more likely to suffer from heat. And the idea of heat equity, right, is making sure that basically all community members, everyone should have the right to healthy, safe temperatures both indoors and outdoors, what we might call a thermally safe environment, right? So in the book, we actually specifically define heat equity, sort of drawing on the Environmental Protection Agency's definition of heat equity as practices and policies that mitigate, so basically actually help to cool and manage heat, so deal with heat that we aren't able to mitigate, so both mitigate and manage with a focus on reducing these inequitable distribution of risk across different groups in the same community. So, you know, the issue is that some neighborhoods within cities are clearly hotter than others, and some people are more susceptible to heat-related illnesses and death, right? And we need to basically be targeting our solutions to try and address these inequities. Okay, fantastic. And and Lad, we've talked about this before, but why doesn't extreme heat, why doesn't heat capture the public's imagination like some other climate change impacts? What what do you speculate the, the reasons for that might be? 
Yeah, so I think kind of going back to that Hurricane Katrina example, of course, um, with those other climate risks like hurricanes and wildfires, you know, they're much more visible. And so certainly we're a visual species, right? Humans look at things and we pay attention to things that look scary. But heat is, is largely invisible, except for those like Sarah was talking about, who it, that it inequitably affects the most. And so for a lot of us, particularly you know, those that are highly educated have high income jobs. You know, we have houses and air conditioning and probably cars. You know, a heat wave is going to impact us much, much differently than those that have lower quality housing, maybe less access to energy for air conditioners, maybe less safe workplace or school environments too. And so unfortunately, a lot of our decision makers probably don't experience heat in the same way that a lot of the population that's most affected by it. So I think there's a lot of reasons that have led us to discount heat as a risk compared to, again, sea level rise, flooding, drought, and wildfire. So let's just jump into the book and it's called Planning for Urban Heat Resilience. And for my listeners out there, this book is free and there's a link in my show notes. So if you want to click that on and actually kind of look at it as maybe you're listening to this, that's an option there for you. And let's talk a little bit about the history of this. I think I may prompt you a bit there. I I guess there was a workshop in Chicago that you two kind of first started thinking about this. Yeah, Doug. So it's kind of a funny story because the the story of how we came to the book is sort of the story of how Sarah and I started to collaborate. So I was remembering back, it was NSF workshop that Sarah and I both attended in Chicago a few years ago. And I think, Sarah, if I'm right, we were kind of just chatting about climate change and urban planning and like heat being something that planners just hadn't focused on a lot. And it was something that I had already been looking at, but was kind of interested very much in your take on it too. And I remember that we kind of landed on the idea that, you know what, we should do like a lit review paper for it. And what wouldn't it be interesting if we um, did a survey for it too? And I think Sarah, if I remember correctly, you convinced me to sit down in the hotel lobby and we just literally <laughs> kind of hammered out some of those survey questions right then and there, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's my memory too, is that we, yeah, I think we kind of came to the conclusion that we both assessment out there of like what the current state of planning for heat was, um, people were increasingly recognizing that this is a problem and this is a climate and weather related, you know, hazard that we really do need to be thinking about and taking seriously. But I think we just didn't really know there hadn't been a lot of research in terms of like what cities were actually doing about it, right? Like where, how were they thinking about it? What information were they using? Like what actual strategies were they implementing. And that was, you know, that was the idea with the survey. And then similarly, in terms of research, we, I think, you know, hadn't really seen a good synthesis of, yeah, of what, what is the current state of the literature and research on heat planning either. And so, yeah, we, we sat down and sort of thought through that and ended up deploying a survey across the U.S. of city planners and also to sort of planning professionals more broadly to try and understand that. We looked did a systematic review of the literature on heat planning. And then, well, I'll I'll let you sort of tell the story of the workshop, which since you really led that effort and which ultimately led into the the APA book. Yeah, absolutely. So like Sarah was saying, those kind of led us to really want to pull together decision makers across like federal agencies and, you know, local folks that were really engaged in heat planning. And so we tried a few ways, but we eventually got the Aspen Global Change Institute to co-host a national workshop that was virtual due to the pandemic, of course. I called the Advancing the Theory and Practice of Urban Heat Resilience. And so, Doug, I think you were actually an attendee at that workshop because I wanted to get you kind of involved in the heat world a little bit more too. But kind of where that led was we had some really good conversations with all of the attendees and the workshop participants about what the state of urban heat resilience was. 
And one of the folks that we had specifically invited was an American Planning Association editor, just to make sure the APA as an organization was involved, because both uh, we both are obviously like in the in the planning scholarship world. And what happened after the workshop was the APA editor reached right back out and said, we kind of convinced her through the workshop that heat was something that APA needed to take a stronger stand on. And we certainly kind of had positioned ourselves at that point to um, be the ones that she was interested in having us write the book for. And so I think kind of the exciting part for me, at least, is the APA has been publishing these reports since 1949 on a whole range of planning topics, of course, over the 60 years plus that they've been doing them. And this is the 600th advisory service report that they've published. So 600, but it's the first one that touches on heat, specifically heat as a comprehensive guidance document. So it really kind of shows you that this really is an emerging issue for communities and the planning profession specifically. Great. The, the whole story, it led to something very useful. And that was very smart to invite the, the editor. You guys plotted it out very well. Good for you. And Sarah, ground us in the topic of the book. What exactly is urban heat resilience? Sure. In the book, we you know, really emphasize that urban heat resilience is about so both mitigating and managing heat, right? So that's, again, trying to actually cool the built environment and also deal with, prepare and respond to any heat that we're not able to mitigate. And then it's both about sort of chronic heat, right? As well as more extreme heat, the sort of classic heat waves that we think about. So that's sort of generally what we're talking about when we're thinking about urban heat resilience. But we specifically define it drawing on a definition of urban resilience that some colleagues and I sort of put forth quite a few years ago, we define it as the ability of an urban system. And we recognize that this includes social, ecological, and technical systems, right? So the ability of the city and that those are going to cut across spatial scales, temporal scales to maintain or rapidly return to desired functions and improve quality of life in the face of chronic and acute heat risks, and to quickly transform systems that limit current or future capacity to adapt to extreme heat. So a lot of words, but essentially what we're saying is that it's about being able to cope with heat risks, right? To change systems that are making it currently difficult to to deal with these risks. And therefore, you know, heat resilience is about not just, you know, kind of bouncing back from a heat wave, right? But actually trying to improve as a result, you know, to constantly improve things and become, you know, better at actually dealing with this hazard. And this next question I'm going to ask you both, because it'll be interesting to see how your, your answers differ. But Vlad, what are the kind of the biggest takeaways from the book that, that you see? That's a great question. I mean, there's so many, there's so many takeaways, honestly, but I think one of the things that I realized through, so I obviously think about heat all the time and (laughs) talk about heat all the time, kind of work on it all the time. But I think the book was a really good exercise for me personally to go through and kind of put all of my thoughts down and all of Sarah's thoughts down kind of collaboratively, obviously in one place and differently than a journal article. Obviously we had to translate this into as plain English as possible for practitioners to make it um, very like practice oriented and useful. And one of the things I realized was that there are actually a lot of useful information sources out there, but they're kind of scattered all over the place, like we see for other climate adaptation efforts. So kind of information that's scattered all over the place. And, you know, since heat is a new topic to the planning profession and to local governance as a whole, kind of a less understanding of how to use the information sources, even if you know that they're out there. So one of the things we tried to do was 
plainly explained that, you know, there's national programs for developing urban heat island maps through NOAA, but then also there's, you know, national data sets of urban heat island maps through organizations like the Trust for Public Land. So that information is largely out there if you're interested in obtaining it. Similarly, communities can look at things like the CDC Social Vulnerability Index. EPA has a new environmental justice screening and mapping tool that have different layers, uh, rel- different layers of information that are very important for kind of heat-related efforts and that show things like heart disease rates and asthma rates that are closely related to the heat-related illnesses. You know, and just kind of pulling all that information together in one place, but then also describing very plainly how uh, communities can use it. And so I think one of the things that we try to make the point in the book of is that communities can't and shouldn't be waiting for perfectly tailored information, but there's so much out there right now that they should use what's available to start today on it not and not wait any longer. That's right. There is a lot in this book, but Sarah, what do you think were some of the biggest takeaways for you? Yeah. So I think in addition to this, I think great point that, that Lad makes about the fact that there actually is a lot of information out there. And I think the challenge is, is not that we completely lack information. It's trying to figure out, okay, what is the right information to use for community? Where can pe- people find it, right? So in addition to that, I think in kind of on similar lines, I also think that there are a lot of different strategies that communities can be implementing today right, to try and both mitigate and manage heat. But the reality is that a lot of them aren't really being explicitly used to address heat right now, right? Some of them, interestingly, communities are planning and and actually implementing, right, things like enhancing walkability, trying to promote alternative forms of of transportation or, or, you know, increasing the amount of trips that are done on bicycles. Those actually can, for example, reduce waste heat in the built environment, right, which can be seen as a heat mitigation strategy. But most cities aren't really actually making that connection. And what we have found, so in that survey that we did of city planners across the U.S., we asked them actually what strategies they were currently implementing. And we found that they were definitely focused on some um, and kind of under using others that we think actually could be quite effective. So for example, we found that 73% uh, of the the cities, and this was a survey of of a diverse sample of cities across the U.S., so cities of different sizes in different regions, 73% that said they were using urban forestry or vegetation to address heat, the most commonly implemented strategy, right? So the majority are doing that. 66% said they were also using emergency response strategies, so trying to, again, think about that heat management but then a minority of planners and communities said that they were using urban design to address heat. Only 24% actually said they had regulations for heat or 34% who actually had conducted heat vulnerability assessments. And as Lad was mentioning, there's information that's already available that could could be used to inform those through, say, the EJ screen that the federal government has produced or the CDC's social vulnerability index, right? And combining that with, you know, information on heat exposure and relative to land surface temperatures, et cetera, could, could be valuable, right, in conducting these vulnerability assessments. So, so yeah, so what we're finding is that there are some strategies that lots of communities are using, urban greening being the sort of prominent one, but others that I think could really be quite effective, potentially, that that just are really sort of underutilized, right? And so I think a key point that I hope people take away from this report is that 
we really could actually expand and diversify the sort of portfolio of heat-related strategies that we're using. And also in our plans and you know, sort of policy documents, I think we could do a better job of actually identifying where there are potential heat mitigation or management co-benefits of the things that we're already doing. Right. And, you know, we've been doing some analysis of city plans, Lad and I, well, some other collaborators through a NOAA funded project. And we found, you know, sort of similar patterns there to the survey, right, where we see a lot of urban greening, but we don't see a lot of discussion around heat when it comes to, you know, urban design, building codes, you know, land use planning, et cetera. And I think there's a real opportunity to connect that with heat explicitly in our policy documents and our plans. So let's talk about some of those examples. Lad, New York City comes up in the book. Why was that highlighted? Yeah, so we do uh, feature quite a few examples of communities across the country. And so large and small communities of all different uh, climates and geographies. Like you mentioned, one of them was New York that we did a little profile on. And they're definitely taking an aggressive stance on kind of heat planning for both mitigation and management, but they're doing it in a decentralized way. And so while some communities are appointing a chief heat officer or like Phoenix is doing a whole office of heat mitigation and management, New York City certainly has in the mayor's office, a highly qualified team of resilience folks and staff, but their approach is much more decentralized. And so they have, you know, planning documents like Cool and Neighborhoods NYC that kind of put together all of their heat related efforts. But very importantly, they also developed their own kind of in-house heat vulnerability index because New York obviously has more resources than a lot of other communities. So that's something that they could pursue doing. But that heat vulnerability index they created, they use that to help inform the location of future cooling centers and prioritizing home check-ins for high-risk individuals. So kind of a buddy system that they've set up. They've also had some pretty interesting programs like the NYC Cool Roofs Program, where they incentivize building owners to paint their roofs white to help mitigate heat and also all of those energy efficiency benefits. But that's kind of paired with a job training component that's geared towards, you know, lower income folks that need like workplace training. And so so they kind of have like a, a very interesting comprehensive approach for heat mitigation, certainly. I was fortunate to go to New York City to do an episode around urban forestry, and it was pretty impressive how integrated it was and how different agencies and nonprofit organizations work working together. So very impressive. And Sarah, you're there in Phoenix, and Lad just briefly noted Phoenix is is doing a lot of this work. Is there anything you want to elaborate on, on what's going on there as a case study? Yeah. So I think, you know, Lad just mentioned, but I think it's worth highlighting that I think Phoenix is really taking, you know, being quite innovative in developing this well, really the first of its kind publicly funded, so city funded office that's dedicated to heat and that focuses on both response, what we call uh, heat management and heat mitigation. And that office is being led actually by a colleague of mine. So he was, he's a professor in geographical sciences and urban planning. He's been working on heat for a long time. And so now he's also, you know, working in the city. So he's still sort of part-time at the university and as well as directing this new office. And so really trying to think what I think is kind of what, what that opportunity raises is a chance to really kind of straddle both research and implementation, right? And to really evaluate what strategies, you know, are working, what are not. So like, for example, Phoenix also has what I believe is the country's largest cool pavement pilot program. And they're working with very closely with a number of researchers at ASU 
to actually monitor and evaluate how that's working, right? Over time, based on those results, right? The Phoenix will decide, of course, whether to really, you know, scale this up. So I think that's another example. And I think they're very interested in, in doing, you know, this kind of evaluation and, you know, partnership with researchers on a lot of what they're trying to implement. Another thing that they're thinking a lot about is tree canopy expansion. So again, urban forestry. And in particular, I know that the city is is quite focused on how they can do that equitably, which I think is very admirable. So really thinking about, okay, how can we address right now um, a pretty notable disparity in in tree canopy cover between lower income um, and wealthier neighborhoods? And how do we basically target our urban forestry and tree planting efforts, you know, to these neighborhoods that really need it most. See, and I think, you know, another thing that Phoenix says, you know, kind of for really been by necessity, right, thinking about heat for quite a long time. So like they have this regional heat relief network that has been working and bringing together a lot of different partners, different levels of government to try and basically, you know, reduce heat impacts and, you know, try to, to stop this increase in heat deaths, which Lad talked about in the beginning of the podcast. Lad, there was a section in, we're not going to go over the entire book, but what stood out for me is it's it was called Addressing Urban Heat Across the Network of Plans. Now, what does that mean? Yeah. So the network of plans is a concept in planning scholarship and practice that, you know, basically it's not just one single plan that determines or shapes up a community's future of the built environment and the community itself, but it's really multiple plans kind of all working in concert. And to understand the future of the community's built environments and kind of other objectives that they may have, you can't just look at one plan, but you really need to understand how all of those plans are working together. So that would be the network of plans. We try to make the case that to really address heat comprehensively in a community, you need to look at the whole network of plans that the community has available to it. So for urban planners, things like a comprehensive plan is kind of one of our primary documents. That's the place where a lot of those visionary statements are, kind of determines future land uses and involves public input. But other things are really important too, like communities' hazard mitigation plans, their public health plans, their parks and recreation plans, transportation plans. So I think one thing that Sarah and I tried to do throughout the book is really make the case that heat planning isn't just for, you know, resilience planners or climate planners or those environmental planners and communities, but it's really something that kind of all planners and all uh, professionals of communities should be thinking about. You know, in a previous life, I was more involved with those plans. Like the comprehensive plan was like sort of the most important one. And you think there are these plans, the parks department has a plan. And unfortunately, and I'm not singling out parks department, but like a lot of those plans are just aspirational. The, the transportation department ignores what the you know park people want to be talking about. And then at the end of the day, I guess it just takes the right political leadership to sort of say, all right, you guys need to integrate, I guess, what you're going for in this network of plans concept because these different departments keep coming up with these plans, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're sharing the information or which one has more oomph than the other. So it is a bit frustrating. I I dealt with that in a previous life and it was just like, all right, well, that was a great plan. says all the right things. And now the one with the bigger budget is going to ignore it. 
Wow. Yeah, and it's, it's really difficult. I think I think both Sarah and I acknowledge that it's by no fault of the local professionals who work hard to of kind course. of advance their community's efforts, right? But, you know, who has time to read through all of these plans and kind of assess where they're all headed? Like, it's not a function of any one job or any one department in a, in a local government. And so I think Sarah mentioned it before, but the one project that we're currently working on that's NOAA funded is the plan integration for resilient scorecard for heat or PERSH. And what we're trying to do there is we've developed a methodology uh, and we're going to be producing a guidebook in the next couple of months that will be out on the APA website for free also that kind of provides a methodology for communities to look through these different plans and basically score their policies to understand how all of those plans are working together to point them towards heat mitigation in the future. So Sarah, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think, you know, exactly that, that the... Our goal with the purchase is basically to help communities to recognize where they potentially have, you know, either inconsistencies, right, or could also see those as opportunities to build synergies, right, between these different planning efforts. And I think you're exactly right, Doug, that often some of these plans end up getting developed and sort of sit on a shelf, right? And I think one of the ways that we can try we as planners can try and re- reduce that is to actually explicitly connect them, right? to other plans that that are more likely to get implemented, right? And make sure that they're not inconsistent, that they actually, you know, are closely connected and that they're they are working as a network. And that's really the idea of thinking about plans as a network. The goal of this plan integration for resilience scorecard for heat, as well as it's sort of based on the plan integration for resilience scorecard, which was initially developed by Phil Burke, who's now at UNC Chapel Hill and some colleagues. They've first sort of uh, developed it for flooding and now being expanded to to other hazards as well. It's, It's just really recognizing that that we need to do a better job of integrating our plans, you know, trying to, yeah, let's sort of make sure that we're not working at cross purposes, right? At different departments or, you know, in different planning efforts. Okay, Sarah, I'm going to keep you on. And let's talk about someone out there. There's, there's all this adaptation planning and that's starting or it has been happening. How can people or these the people that are responsible for these things better integrate heat into holistic climate adaptation planning? I mean, is your book sort of a guide? Is I mean, what what kind of advice would you give? Yeah, I mean, I think that heat needs to be included in any kind of climate adaptation. I mean, I think the same sort of best principles of what we want to see for climate change planning more broadly apply to heat. In fact, we we actually in sort of developing our principles in this book for what planning for heat resilience should look like, we sort of drew on seven principles that that I had proposed along with Sierra Woodruff, who's formerly at Texas A&M. And we published an article for the Journal of the American Planning Association where, yeah, we basically said that plans that, you know, strong climate change planning should have, you know, ambitious goals, associated metrics of success. We need to be really including, you know, a strong, what we call a fact base, which is, you know, climate information. We need to be using diverse strategies. We need to be engaging the public, right? Really thinking about justice and prioritizing that. We need to be coordinating, right? Across different departments, different sectors, different plans. We need to actually be implementing and monitoring what we're doing. And also we need to think about and incorporate strategies to address uncertainty. And so those are those seven principles. And we basically argue that those also apply for heat and explain, you know, how those apply as well in in this book. I think in general, you know, there's a lot of potential synergies with for heat planning and lessons learned from broader adaptation that can, you know, certainly be applied to heat planning. I just think that, you know, we're maybe not as far along in that as we are for some other climate hazards, right? 
Lad. So in the book, there's a ton of policy recommendations or best practices that you guys offer. A lot of times when you're an urban planner and you're dealing with, I guess, your leadership, universities, when I was at University of Georgia, they would be responsible for actually coming up with the language for like a model ordinance. Is guidance like that in the book. And sometimes you might have a leadership that's willing to go along, but they just don't have the kind of intellectual capacity to come up with these things. But an actual regulation, a particular ordinance, is there things like that? So if someone's listening to this right now, they can go to the book and say, all right, we've got some really concrete things that allow you to embed this really right away into what you're doing. Yeah, and I think that's the role that those case studies really play for the book, because we certainly drew from all of the case study examples that we knew about and we could find through our research that do have exactly what you're talking about, Doug, kind of regulations that you can point to and say, you know, city X, Y, and Z have done this. And, and honestly, that's how a lot of planning happens. The communities kind of look and see what's been written and adopted in other locations and then modify it for their own purposes. So I would kind of point to, we have a couple examples from Tucson, actually, because Tucson's been doing heat regulations for a little bit longer than many other communities. And like Sarah mentioned, the planning profession as a whole is not using the land use regulation tools as much as kind of capital improvements projects or like those urban forestry and green stormwater infrastructure projects. And so at least for the city of Tucson, we pointed to our infill incentive district, which is our overlay zone to encourage downtown redevelopment and kind of pointed specifically to some of those, what you're talking about, those exact requirements to provide shade along sidewalks and building windows and I mean, the Tucson downtown code is very specific because it requires things like shade to be provided for at least 50% of all sidewalks and pedestrian pathways as measured at exactly 2 p.m. on June 21st <laughs> during the peak solar exposure of our summer based on our latitude. And so I think for communities to see examples like that, not just from Tucson, but from across the country, very specific examples and kind of see what is possible and how communities are addressing heat is really important. And Sarah, there are a, a list of a variety of heat networks that people can, I guess, join or they can find different sources of information there. How do people know what network to do? Is it sort of, it's pretty obvious that, okay, this particular network's for an urban planner, but this might be for a university student. Well, how would you recommend they kind of maneuver through the different network uh, recommendations you guys have? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think at this point, there are not so many networks that it's overwhelming. I think probably most people who are really working on heat could benefit from from participating in in any of these. But of course, they do have you know slightly different orientations. Those who are interested in more on the health side, I think the global you know heat health information network is going to be really valuable if people are really you know working within a city trying to think about implementing that. You know, the Global Cool Cities Alliance you know could be valuable. I think. Everyone would benefit from the information that Lad disseminates through his network on heat information. So I think there's the extreme heat network. So I think, I think all are useful. But of course, I think, you know, depending on what exactly your interests are and, and focuses in terms of addressing heat, then some of these will be more valuable than others. And Lad, I'm going to put you on the spot here. And maybe if you don't know how to answer, Sarah, you can jump in too. But I, I did a couple episodes on the recently released, well, it hasn't been that recent, but the federal agency came out with their climate adaptation action plans. And we went through, Jesse Keeney and I went through all those. Well, he, he did the hard work. And do they address the relevant agencies? Do they talk about heat much? Yeah, that's a great question, Doug. So I would say it's beginning to be integrated into not just that specific example, but more kind of more proposed legislation and some initiatives across the federal government. I would say there's still a majority of times that I look at something that's proposed 
and it'll name climate risks and it'll name sea level rise, flooding, wildfires and drought and leave off heat. So I think in the last year or two, I've certainly seen heat be mentioned more frequently, which is good, but it's still far, far behind how the federal government is currently thinking about other climate risks. The The Biden administration is currently working to push OSHA to potentially have like uh, heat worker safety standards. You know, that could take years to adopt and kind of go through the process. But the fact that they're talking about it is something that we've never seen before. So that's kind of a positive thing. But I would say really like thinking about heat, it just really needs to be integrated into all agencies, basically like all federal agencies and their operations. And so I think we even talk about this in the book, but, you know, federal agencies like the Department of Education should care about heat because um, it's been shown that when children are exposed to higher temperatures without that important indoor cooling, it degrades their learning ability and like leads to worse uh, educational outcomes. But you have like HUD, which provides a lot of public housing, and certainly they should be very aware of uh, different indoor cooling programs and energy efficiency programs to connect those dots to. And you know, I think the Department of Transportation is starting to make strides too, but a lot of the urban heat is caused by our transportation infrastructure specifically, and so not just the operation of that infrastructure, but kind of how we build it in the future should all take heat mitigation into account at the same level that we think about flood risk with that transportation infrastructure. I would imagine, especially at the higher levels when they're coming up with adaptation action plans, people are going to be desperate for performance indicators and metrics on, you know, are we doing something right here? And again, heat is overlooked and there's ways of tying in a lot of those metrics, you know, with the mortalities, it's the number one killer for climate change. So I'm surprised that just from the purely, all right, how do we quantify that we're doing something positive here that heat isn't more integrated into their approaches? So I guess, yeah, I hope to see more of that. Sarah, just we're getting toward the end here. And I wonder how you guys have learned from the whole COVID experience that for it looked like some of the state's got into the business of not necessarily recording the COVID deaths or COVID cases. And there is the notion of what is a heat-related death. And Alad, we've talked about this before. It's not clear-cut sometimes, even though heat might have been the ultimate cause, but there's other issues that might have actually been the cause of death. Do you see the idea of reporting on heat becoming political like that? Because it, it maybe it reflects that a city's not doing enough. Do you hear that out there? That is that becoming an issue? I mean, I have not heard of specific examples of that, but I can certainly imagine that 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 could be the case. And that obviously, if you have your heat deaths are trending upward, that doesn't look great, right? And that definitely is going to be a concern for a community. And yeah, I've not heard of any specific example where heat death reporting has been, you know, politicized or they changed methods. But I mean, I could definitely imagine that happening. I certainly can imagine just everyone wants to politicize every bit of data out there. All right, lad, give us, I I think you guys had some partners in this that you want to acknowledge. Yeah, definitely. So I think the other thing Sarah and I probably learned through this process is just how many people it takes to to produce a, a publication like this. So, you know, of course, the American Planning Association was instrumental for even giving us kind of the platform to, to pursue this project. NOAA, with the grants to make this a freely available resource, 
And to me, that's really important that it's not just a resource for APA members, but anybody can download it. And Sarah and I wrote the book in mind for not just planners, but all community decision makers to hopefully draw some lessons from. And then we had quite a few peer reviewers, right, Sarah, that I think all contributed a lot of insight into the review of the book. And then two students specifically. So Erica Schmidt really pays to have a student. She's a Master of Architecture student now and helped us with some of our amazing graphics and kind of bringing our thoughts and concepts to visual life. And then Shaylin, who's a student at ASU, who helped us do some of the background research for the report too. Okay, last question. And I'm going to start with Lad just because he, he's done this before and then it gives you a moment to think about it. Sarah, if you haven't thought about it, Lad, if you could recommend someone to come on the podcast, who would it be? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask this. I was thinking about this before and I was actually kind of reflecting on the, just a few weeks ago, you came to my climate action planning class and did the guest lecture that um, I've been lucky enough to have you do the last couple of years. And I remember a specific point in the in your guest talk where you said, I think it was that climate adaptation is still like a really new thing. And we're basically inventing this as we go along. So it's still like a brand new thing to kind of, you know, human society and government and all of that. And I think a lot of the students in that class were kind of surprised by that because certainly like we were three quarters of the way through the class and, you know, I've certainly presented all of the research and kind of practical guidance I can for them to go out as professionals and know how to do climate action planning. I think for me, that was kind of a moment where I was thinking that it would be great to hear more from the student perspective, just kind of what do they think of climate adaptation or climate resilience now? Because certainly it has developed quite a bit over the last couple of years, but like you said in in your guest lecture, it still is a relatively new thing. And so kind of what's what's their perspective as new professionals I'd be really interested to hear more about. So just a student that is just interested in getting the field. Yeah. Okay. It's a new voice, I think. Cool. I like that. Sarah, what do you got? Yeah, well, I was just going to add to that, that I I agree, actually, that that's a really interesting perspective. And I, you know, as an educator and somebody who, you know, on our our planning faculty, and we have a lot of, you know, professional planning students, they're always asking me, well, like, I'm really passionate about, you know, climate resilience, climate adaptation. How do I actually, you know, get into the field? Like, what does that mean? And I, I, you know, that's always something that I'm trying to give them some guidance. I often tell them to join the, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. You know, I have recommended your podcast before, hey, but I think excellent. it's, I think we're still figuring that out, right? Like, and I, I do, I agree with that, that I think it's still developing as a profession. And so it would be interesting to hear, hear what students have to say about that. So I'll second that one. But I think if you're, you know, interested in expanding more on this issue of heat, right, and how we actually adapt to this, then I would potentially recommend my colleague and now the city of Phoenix's director of the Office of of Heat Response and Mitigation, Dave Hondula, because he has been working as a researcher for a long time on heat. So he really, you know, has thought a lot about it. And now he's actually trying to put that into practice. So bridging that academic practice divide and local and, you know, working really in local government. And just in talking with him, he's gotten a lot of insights, even in just a few short months on the job. He's quite busy these days working his multiple jobs, but if you could get him on the the podcast, I think he would have a lot of insights into some of the, yeah, the sort of opportunities, but definitely also challenges of actually, you know, doing heat resilience planning at this point. All right. Excellent recommendations. Okay, guys, thanks again for coming on. Congratulations on the book you've provided and you've created a great resource for a lot of people here. There are links in my show notes if people want to get their hands on it. It's free. It's, you know, the PDF form so you can 
in different ways you want to do it. And again, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having us on, Doug. Yeah, thank you so much, Doug. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Lad and Sarah for joining the podcast. Always a treat to have Lad on and great to connect with Sarah. Definitely check out their book. It's free, it's a PDF, and there's a link in the show notes. Lots of practical advice on how to integrate extreme heat into your planning. And also just fantastic case studies for you policymakers out there that are trying to address extreme heat. Again, it's the climate impact that already kills more people than any other. The nature of the impact allows it to get lost in the media reporting. So what Lad and Sarah provide here is doing a lot of the hard work for you and definitely look to join some of the extreme heat networks to stay abreast of the latest information and to make some partnerships in this space. Thanks again, Lad and Sarah. Okay, don't forget to check out Wondrium, the streaming service where you can watch or listen to lectures, programs, and courses. There's a free two-week trial. Use the link they generated for the podcast, wondrium.com slash adapts. Check it out. It's in the show notes too. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring a whole podcast episode of America Apps. I mention this every episode. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location and record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the work you're doing. I've done these with groups like UPenn Wharton, NRDC, Harvard, University of Florida, World Wildlife Fund. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent some of the most influential people in the adaptation space. Most podcasts have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. Previous sponsors have used a podcast to communicate with their own members, their board members, and even potential funders. Have your funder listen to a podcast instead of sending a boring annual report. Trust me, I've been a board member. My previous sponsors have found the process actually pretty fun since there's a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together. Please reach out. Let's have a conversation around this so you can learn more. Okay, I'm always hearing from listeners that they have started listening to the podcast in the last few months or the last year. And that means they have missed out on a bountiful archive if they haven't poked around at previous episodes. So I'm going to dig in the vault when I can and highlight two previous episodes in case you need some recommendations. So in episode 115 of America Daps, a re-release of episode 80, Adaptation Conservation to Climate Change at the World Wildlife Fund. I join WWF's Sean Martin to revisit this episode and see the progress that has been made from when it was originally released in 2018. In the original episode, we take a behind-the-scenes look at how WWF is adapting conservation to the new realities of climate change and helping governments prepare for the future in ways that ensure a place for nature. This is especially important with all the chatter around nature-based solutions in the adaptation space. Okay, also check out everything you wanted to know about Managed Retreat, but we're afraid to ask with Dr. A.R. Siders. This is episode 100 of America Daps, and I talk with Dr. A.R. Sider, who is an assistant professor at the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. Dr. Siders defines what managed retreat is and also the policy challenges of getting communities to undertake this adaptation action. Two great episodes. Have a listen. Also, if you are interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and you're going to enjoy it. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are very fun and I get to meet people and I get to share stories around adaptation. It's this emerging issue. You need to let your members know about this. I talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can reach me at my website, americadapts.org. And for my regular listeners, podcasts rely on word of mouth. Please take a moment and plug America Adapts on your favorite social media feed. I'm on all, all those feeds. 
except for TikTok. Maybe I should consider that. And I always reshare if you connect to me. I can't stress enough how important word of mouth recommendations are for podcast growth. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. You guys reach out and it gives me insight to who's listening. Sometimes it leads to a Zoom call and I get to meet you and learn about what you're up to and maybe brainstorm on a potential episode. Seriously, it is the highlight of my week. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.